it turned out um, to be a really rewarding opportunity. But man, it was one of those things, you know, you're, you're bebopping in someone's office. You're all excited. You're like, this is going to be easy. And I'm going to go um, slam dunk, hit up a happy hour at the hotel bar, that sort of thing. And nope, we were there for hours and I was sweating. Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories, and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. If you've listened to this podcast for more than 10 seconds, you know that my entire goal is to get you to schedule more visits. Most major gift fundraisers fail in this industry because they do not do the difficult, scary work of scheduling visits with the right people consistently. The majority of my success in major gifts came from constantly seeking to become as effective as possible at scheduling visits. I read tons of sales books, watched YouTube videos from sales experts, and studied Jerry Pandas' materials on the matter. On top of that, I practiced. The things I learned from experts gave me the confidence to actually make the calls. Today, I have a great resource that I highly recommend you download. Greg Warner from MarketSmart, this episode's sponsor, has put together a guide to help you schedule more visits. It's titled, Top 10 Tips for Landing More Meetings. Not only does Greg run a company that enables major gift fundraisers to be more effective, but he is a successful entrepreneur that has scheduled countless meetings and been on the receiving end of many people trying to schedule meetings with him. He knows a thing or two about this subject and provides 10 great tips, starting with a quote from someone you know I talk about on this podcast all the time, Jerry Panis. Greg is the real deal, and this guide will help you schedule more visits. Go download it now at imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. That's imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. The bonus tip, number 11, is my personal favorite. Let me know what you think. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to One Visit Away. Sorry it has been a while since I have put a new episode out. Again, I committed to doing a new episode every week for a year. Once we hit that point, I had so much stuff going on with this transition to consulting full-time and several other things that it's taken a bit of a back burner, uh, but... Uh, I'm going to, you know, every now and then get a new episode out, and hopefully once I get through this busy season, we'll be back to every week. But this week, I am super excited to share with y'all this epic conversation with Roy Loudenback. Roy is the System Vice President of Philanthropy at Baptist Health System, Kentucky and Indiana. This conversation with Roy is packed with incredible stories and amazing opportunities to learn. In fact, it's such a good episode, we recorded for almost two hours, and so I'm splitting this up into two episodes. You're going to get part one this week, and then next week I'll get part two uploaded. But thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this great conversation with Roy Loudenback. Well, welcome to One Visit Away, Roy. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Kevin. appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. It's going to be awesome. So, man, so many things to say before before I begin. We've got the Turtle King of the South here on the podcast. And Roy, with that brief introduction, please tell everybody who you are and uh, what you do. And maybe we'll go into the, the turtle training uh, a little bit later. 
<laughs> Thanks, Kevin. You know, my name is Roy Loudenback, and uh, I am grateful to be a part of uh, an awesome system. I'm current the, currently the system vice president um, for philanthropy at Baptist Health, Kentucky and Indiana. I've been with this organization for seven years, um, but I've had the privilege to be in philanthropy um, for almost 20 years now, um, both in healthcare and higher education. So it's uh, it's been an awesome career and looking forward to many more years of it. Yeah. So I just, man, I can't believe I didn't say this as the first thing. One of the, so for those of you who don't know, which is everyone, uh, <laughs> Roy works with Laura Crowley, who listeners of this show will remember her episode was titled The Seven Figure Tree and some other stuff, which was one of our most popular episodes ever. And so Roy led that capital campaign that a lot of Laura's stories revolved around. So this episode, I am certain, will be memorable at the least and uh, hopefully very valuable. Thanks, Kevin. It was a great campaign, and uh, Laura's been an incredible partner, and uh, we've been great colleagues uh, working through that campaign and, and now a new um, large-scale uh, work effort across our system at Baptist Health. Yeah, and what's that What's that goal? How much are y'all trying to raise? Well, I'm not allowed to tell the media yet. We're still in a silent phase. Come on now. <laughs> it's more than $20. We'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, tell everybody, I made the joke about you being the Turtle King of the South. That's my, I just made that up. But you do have some actual uh, turtle success stories. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, in, in my youth and childhood, probably uh, uh, kindergarten to second grade, I lived in a small town that um, uh, in Kentucky that uh, on the 4th of July, so we're almost the 4th of July weekend here, um, we had a turtle race and a frog hop competition, and I took that very serious. So as my parents traveled all over the region for different reasons for work, we had boxes in the back of the car, and every time a turtle was spotted, we stopped and picked it up. So I had about 40 and I trained them and I learned how to work with my turtles and we won many awards between smallest, largest and fastest. That was the coveted positions and coveted trophies to win. And I have those and we laugh about it and I have the trophies in my office and which is uh, very funny. But, uh, you know, I look back now, the many things that I learned about patients in that time, especially as we work with donors and employees and the importance of patients. And while we want to get a lot of the great things done and while we want to help our missions advance, um, we do have to have patience with the work that we're doing because um, we can't make it our time. It has to be other people's time. Yeah, I love that. So, man, this is a I'm hearing about this, you know, for the first time in, in person, essentially uh, now. But one of the things that makes me think of is just like you were so dedicated to your craft at a young age. Like it's a random it's one of the most random crafts I've heard of, but you were just all in on turtle training. <laughs> and uh, I think that I think that uh, that passion for the craft is crucial. Like people that I know that are super successful at fundraising, it's not just something that they're like, eh, I go in, I do my work from nine to four and then I go home and we'll just see if I'm interested again the next day. Like I would imagine you are all in on all in 24, 24 seven. Um, I know that it's not necessarily the perfect example of work-life balance, but I believe that when a donor calls, 
um, whether it's midnight because they're in the emergency department or whether you're in higher education and it's on a holiday or something and they need help with uh, something that's uh, going on at that uh, higher education institution that you respond. That's how you develop relationships. And so my wife, who's a pediatrician, will often tell you that uh, her call schedules are often um, uh, uh, less busy than my uh, my regular days because the phone never stops. I'm always on my phone doing something. And that might not be the best example for, for everyone or, or what everyone's looking for. But I believe in building relationships and one of the things that I'm not good at is turning it off because I want, I'm passionately trying to help us move forward. I always talk about let's um, move Baptist forward. And so I want to work with all of our partners and, um, you know, it's got to be on their time. So when we work with donors and individuals and partners, they're busy. They have other lives they're leaving. They're leading businesses. They're leading organizations. And so whenever they have a moment, I have to make their time um, that's good for them work for me. And so that causes us to be very flexible and have to be uh, patient and uh, have grace with the schedules and what that means and what that calls us to do at times that we're not always um, wanting to be uh, on the clock, but we got to be on the clock. At least that's how I see it. I'm not sure that that's the way that I'll, I'll do, but that's just the way I've crafted my career around that uh, kind of model. Yeah. So there's, man, a couple things. So th- this very topic, there's a a book that I plan on writing. This is a little teaser for everybody. And I know what the title of this book is, but I'm not going to not gonna say it here just yet in fear that someone will steal it. But what you're talking about is the exact quality of every, like the super successful major gift fundraisers all have that. And it, it comes out in different ways. Like, but but essentially this idea that like, you don't stop thinking about it because this isn't, and, and it's not because I've never asked you this before, but the reason you bring that level of intensity is not because uh, career aspirations for you. I mean, that, that might be part of it, but there's something deeper there as to like what your why is and why you've you know chosen to do this for this hospital system. So I'm just assuming that's the case, but I'm almost know that it's true. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Like, what, like, why do you bring that level of intensity to this? You know, I, I believe um, that uh, we have a, a a reason for being here on this earth, right? And uh, there's a calling that we all have to find. And I believe my calling was, it is to help organizations advance. And so I believe that my skill sets and the talents that I bring to the table are connecting with people. I'm very relationship driven. And I know that people are philanthropic. I know that organizations have needs. And I believe when you can take the needs and the opportunities of an organization and match those um, with people's philanthropic interests to have impact, that's when beautiful things happen. And so that takes a lot of work. And, you know, my wife likes to laugh and say that all I do is uh, brunch for a living. Um, We're very strategic (laughs) in how we interact with people. And it takes time. You know, sometimes you can walk in a door and share um, why you're there and what the organization um, 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 can can advance because of the the partnership. And it might transpire in one day where they hand you a a check. And sometimes it might take years, right, because um, people are philanthropic at different levels. And they get moved at different moments. And so that's why we have to learn what 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 it is that they're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, long story short, my my wise, it's not necessarily that I'm I am um, so passionate about higher education or um, 
or medicine. It's about helping organizations um, have the revenue they need to create the impact that they want to on their communities. I think education is important for an individual and society. I think healthcare is important for us all. We only have one life to live. And so why not work with these organizations so that when we need those services, they're here and that we can celebrate around um, organizations striving to do better because their revenue and their margins, healthcare margins are, you know, three to four percent. Um, but philanthropy um, margins in healthcare are 75 to 80 percent. Right. And so there's the story. There's the opportunity to allow those CEO and presidents. It's op- our opportunity to align um, with them. So they've got the strategy that they're leading. As we align with that strategy, we can help them provide the funding in order to impact more lives. Yeah, that's awesome. Sweet. Well, let's get into uh, we could we could talk philosophy all day, but I want to get into some of your some of your stories here. Well, actually, let's go back to yeah when you were in college, you got started working in philanthropy. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, um, it, was, it was very unique. I, I was president of my student body at Georgetown College in Kentucky, and when I left that role, the the president there said that I wasn't a student body president that accessed him a lot. That I kind of did things. I'm on my own and didn't often have to go to him to help uh, maneuver my agenda. And he invited me to be a student representative that traveled with him from time to time, that when he was meeting with donors to share the story of what we were doing on that campus so that they could hear, you know, they were alumni oftentimes wanting to reflect on um, their experiences and that I could help connect with that, talking about what it looks like now. And, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer, and uh, I decided when I did some intern work that that maybe not be the best career for me. And then I quickly learned that there was an opportunity to be involved in higher education that wasn't necessarily teaching. I didn't know that teaching was my calling, um, but definitely so supported and respected it. So I quickly realized, wow, there's a business side to the operations of the organizations where philanthropy is needed and where people do want to give. And it actually was very enjoyable to meet with people and to have conversations and build that relationship and quickly saw um, what an opportunity it was and the impact that was that could be had there. So at a very young age, I decided I wanted to be a, philanthrop- a philanthropy um, um, leader in, in my time. And so I continued to get education and experiences from about the age of 21 or 22 on in order to make that happen. Yeah. So any uh, stories stand out in your mind from traveling around with the president? Um, you know, none that will probably uh, make people uh, remember that that um, part of my life, except for I just learned a lot. He would always talk about when we were flying on a plane or we were going somewhere. He would say he would all, he was so good at, 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 his, at his job. He understood when someone brought either their spouse to the table or not, or they invited us to their home versus their workplace, there were so many indicators that he looked for to decide what it was that was going to help make this transpire or what he needed to do in order to follow up with them. Right. He, he always wanted to, to um, learn some things. So it was just a lot of things I just learned. I just picked up yeah. from understanding that it wasn't just about finding someone's name, calling them and showing it up that you really had to be thoughtful about what it was that you're communicating and how were they responding. And he really taught me the importance of the visit. He's like, let's not do this over the phone or via the mail. Let's go meet with people and see their body language and see where, um, and, and see how they represent themselves. And, you know, and it, it, is our, our college, um, um, uh, memorabilia in their office that are not, or is there other things that are competing with us? Like what can we learn from it? So I, yeah. I think more than anything, I just learned um, the importance of paying attention to detail and to making sure that you're getting in front of people face to face. Cause that's where the magic happens. 
Yeah, for sure. Man, so I love that you had that experience so early on, um, which leads me to a question out of left field. How many times in your career have you ever asked someone for a gift over the phone? Wow. Um, that I, that's not a, a metric I've kept track of. So I appreciate that because I've not done it much. Um, I have done it if you need to, especially, um, unfortunately in the pandemic here recently. Um, I would tell you that most of the time my ask of a gift on the phone would be something that would fall more in the lower levels that you might categorize as annual giving club kind of renewals. Um, not, um, a, a first time gift. I, I, I don't even know what to, how to answer that for you. You, you, you just threw me a curveball because no. I believe even asking <laughs> someone for a thousand dollars should happen face to face. Right. Exactly. So that that's what I was expecting you were going to answer because for, for you and me, like the way we got into this, just face to face is just like to not do it that way seems absurd. Right. Uh, and so it, but for most people, who just, you know, work at a nonprofit, especially a lot of the clients I work with, much smaller organizations, they don't have any example of this. So to them, it might be almost all of the asks they've ever made are just over the phone, if they've even made asks at all. Right. Um, and so, so my rule is always, is basically just like, unless there's no other way, like do it in person. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Everything you said from your boss, just all those things that you see, um, just seeing their expressions, what's around them is so important. Now, I, my philosophy in, in fundraising or philanthropy, however you want to um, to, to label it, is that um, this is not about people writing you a check and you sending them a thank you note. It's about engaging people for them to get to know you and the organization and for you to get to know them. And it's honestly not about the gift officer. It's about the gift officer bringing someone to the organization because gift officers come and go. And so you've got to connect people to the organization so that um, that relationship and the continued giving occurs, even when the person that connected them is no longer with the organization. Yeah, for sure. That's great. So yeah, tell me about, uh, Man, let, oh wait, well here we go. We're we're going back. You've got me. You sent me these uh, these great notes beforehand. We haven't even gotten into selling hamsters to the pet store. <laughs> Tell us about that. So after my turtle days, we moved to another city. You know, my dad was a as an education guy, and so was a superintendent principal all over. So I hopped all over the state of Kentucky, and so I found an opportunity at a little store called True Value in another small community I lived in that they seem to have an issue of getting hamsters in from their um, vendors or their suppliers. So I realized, you know what? I can breed these things in my walk-in closet of a bedroom off of my sister's room with all these cages that even though some would escape and she would run out of the house with her arms flailing, flailing in the air. And I had about 10 mating pairs and I could produce hamsters pretty quickly. But there's nothing more devastating than coming home from the fourth grade and realizing you hadn't gotten the mail out and the, and the female gave um, birth to the babies and them not making it. Um, uh. So, yeah. So so there were lots of things to learn about the, the sanctity of life. But, uh, I mean, I sure knew how to sell lots of hamsters, which allowed me to buy lots of baseball cards back in the day. Wait, so you mailed the hamsters? No, no, sorry, sell lots of hamsters. I would, I would take them over to the store, okay, and gotcha, sell them gotcha. to them. Um, I was their, their, their uh, local supplier. You know, 
okay. local home and Man. local grown. See, if this would have been just, you know, 20 years into the future, you could have made it onto Shark Tank. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I would love to get a deal from Mark Cuban. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, man, I love that. So yeah, let's, those are just the interesting. So have you ever read the book, uh, born to raise by Jerry Panis? We were just talking about how you don't read anything, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I reading is an opportunity that I can do more, uh, more of that. So I, I've not read that book, but I do know, do know that author. So, so born to raise, it's just a, this case study he does of all the most successful, fundraisers in the country and he goes into these stories and so he's got like the data but then he's also got stories and one of the things that almost every super successful fundraiser had in common is that they grew up in a small town Mm. and i don't know i there's just something to me about like you know, getting turtles up to to racing shape and selling hamsters and just like there's just something about that and just those I don't know. I just I love that drive and that just like whatever's in front of me, I'm gonna I'm gonna make something productive out of it. So besides the two towns we mentioned that are noted for the turtles and for the hamsters, the majority of my youthful career I grew up in a town that had zero stoplights, one gas station. So, uh, yeah, so um, everywhere my dad moved me, it kept getting smaller and smaller. And he moved me to a town so small that I couldn't find hamsters or turtles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that is awesome. So, yeah, let's let's jump into you've got a story here. It's about about a humble donor. Could you tell us that one? Yes, um, man, it's one of my favorite stories um, uh, of my career, and it literally um, is an example of understanding um, the importance of visiting with people and the importance of a yes and the ripple effects that that yes can have. Oftentimes, it's more important than the what that one donor is committing to a project or to a cause that because of what they do, more ripples occur and the, the impact they have of getting more people involved. And so the long story short is this. We are at, um, working on our um, feasibility study to have a campaign. The goal was to hopefully have around a $10 million capital campaign um, to support a NICU and a cancer center as the main two projects. There were other opportunities for donors if they're interested in other options. Um, but those are the main projects. And the feasibility study came back with very moderate um, um, indicators of confidence that we could do the campaign. It wasn't that we couldn't and it wasn't that we should. It was just like, eh, it could maybe happen. Well, realizing this strategically, I knew that one of the um, humble donors I was working with, who was actually a board member, um, was the most dedicated person to the organization um, in terms of their giving that I'd ever met and had always planned to make a, a large gift but really didn't want any recognition, really just kind of wanted it to happen in, in the dark of the night, so to say, and just because of the love, just wanted it to happen. Um, but we realized that if we could get this donor to step forward and to share their commitment as we were given the results of the feasibility study, 
that it would be the tipping point to make this campaign occur. And that's exactly what happened. I still remind the donor to this day that without his commitment, that campaign would not have gotten approved because literally the discussion was, well, maybe we shouldn't do it. And then when we shared this campaign commitment, they said, why not go into a silent phase and see how we can do and see where it goes from there. And our $10 million goal got surpassed and we raised $12.1 million in 11 months. And it was absolutely because that gift occurred, that commitment and the ripples that happened around it. And and it was just um, incredible. Wow. That's awesome. So how did he how did he wind up making that decision? It 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 took that visit that you always talk about that's so important. Setting down and explaining the impact. Um, that it's not um that people need to understand that when they walk through the walls of this hospital and they drive by these buildings, that it wasn't just that this hospital's printing money as everyone thinks in the basement. Um, our margins are small and that we needed names on buildings and names on units and names in the hallways to remind people that this, this occurred because people were involved. The community was responding and wanting good health care in their region. And so just explaining that if he came forward, he would allow other people to come forward. It would allow people to understand the importance of coming forward and that together we can make it happen. And so once we painted that vision and explained to him that, you know, we're not doing this because you want your name plastered on a building. We're doing this because if you care so much and if you demonstrate that care and allow us to share that story, it's going to motivate others. And man, it did it do that. It, it, it literally, it was, it's the story that continues to be told regularly. And I, I love still having stewardship lunches with this family because um, it was a transformational point in this moment. And now we have a, a beautiful cancer center and NICU because of it. How did you discover this family and how did, uh, how did the amount of the gift come about? Like, was it something? Yeah, yeah. How did how did how did that happen? Okay, great questions. Um, so you know, sometimes um, our best donors are right there, um, uh, right there in front of us, and we're we're not even realizing it, right? Um, so this was a, an individual who'd been a business owner. He'd been on different boards with our organization, very close to us. And so sometimes we always think that to go make something transformational happen, we got to go out into the community and find it far and wide, right? Um, and so when discussing through the feasibility study, um, we knew the, the person that gave annual gifts would always be supportive, um, but they shared some information um, in the feasibility study um, that they did not mark was confidential and they didn't mind if they talked about it. So they opened up the, 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 the consultant um, got them to open up and share more than we were able to do it. Cause we were too close to the situation. We hadn't stepped back and asked all the right questions. And so it was a third party that helped us ask the right questions. And so when um, that transpired and it allowed me to then follow up with them, um, that's kind of what got it moving instead of realizing the value. And then it's one of these things that when we showed them what we were trying to do and what we were trying to accomplish, they were willing to look at their portfolio of their um, um, investments and realize that even though they had certain mark, a certain amount earmarked, they actually could move that scale and earmark just a little bit more to help us do something even more grand. And so because of that conversation and having it, we worked with them. You know, people give what they're comfortable giving. And you've got to ask for them. And if, and if they give to you and say yes, as soon as you ask them, I always tell my gift officers, then you didn't ask them for enough, right? Because they need to stop and think about it. And so um, this individual stopped and thought about it, went back and worked with his family and, and prayed about it and spent time figuring out what was right 
to meet the need and the opportunity of the organization and then what he had to really uncover. And so, you know, he dug a little deeper and uh, that's kind of how that all transpired. And it uh, was multiple millions of dollars that um, really propelled the campaign and to got us, got us to where we are today. Man. So cool. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, there's so much gold there. Uh, yeah. I mean the, the one thing <laughs> just about, Everybody knows that feeling. Man, if you don't know the feeling, you're just... I didn't realize people didn't know what was going on. When you ask for the gift, you know, I'd like you to probably consider a gift of a million dollars. Sure, yeah, we'll do it. Here you go. Yeah. No! (laughs) (laughs) Didn't ask for enough. (laughs) I know, because it's... I mean, there's there's nothing you can do in the moment. Like, uh, actually, I meant... (laughs) Two million. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Five, five. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, um, yeah. That's just a phenomenal story, and I I love how that worked out and and led to the success. And yeah, that that point you were making that man. Everybody always wants to find new people, but it's just those people in your database. Like always, ask yourself like, do we actually know what we think we know about these people? Like that person that that we think, well, they give us $50,000 a year, so that's all they can do. Like, have they actually told us that? Or are we just, yeah. Kevin, you bring up a good point. It's it's about relationships, right? Not everyone's going to tell you everything in the first time you meet them, right? That's why you have to meet with people. That's why you have to develop a relationship. That's why you have to establish credibility. And the more they get to know you, and I teach gift officers, you know, when we work with these board members like this individual – we want them to give us referrals of people to go with and to, to reach out to and to share the, the opportunities. And when you do that, even if you can't tell the detail because of confidential confidentiality of what they might give you, there's still ways of sharing back the successes or the responses that people are having. And that's the follow through part that then energizes even those board members like this individual to get more engaged with you because they realize that besides their own giving, they had an impact because they got other people to give, right? And so that's yes. the power and the beauty of it. You're get, you're only going to learn the full story by spending time and developing that relationship. Um, you can only meet someone for the first time once. And so I always tell gift officers it's important to figure out why, what's the follow-up? What, what's the reason you're going to meet with them again, right? And, and it's meaningful, not just to get in front of someone to waste their time and your time. What, yeah. What's the meaningful reason that you're going to get back there? And so it's very important that people enjoy visiting with you so they don't uh, yes. silence your call when you call again or delete your email when you send out an email. If they enjoyed visiting with you, they're going to want to get back together again, right? And then that's how that continues to transpire. Don't try to accomplish – don't take a big notebook in and try to get every question answered that first time you meet with them. Um, have have that relationship spread across time so it's organic and it's genuine. Yeah, so true, man. Yeah, I, so much there. Um yeah, I, I, I think that what, what you're talking about, just having people like you, is so key. And this this can't be, you know, overstated enough. It's like it doesn't matter what you do on the visit if the person doesn't like you, like <laughs> they're they're not gonna they're not gonna want to see you again. So so you know, I same thing. I always tell people that I work with, like your number one goal with that visit, especially that first one like you're talking about is just have them walk away from it saying, man, I'm glad I took the time to meet with Roy. Like, yes. Well, if said. they don't feel that, you know, I, there's two goals I give gift officers on the first visit. 
one, they have an enjoyable time with you. So they want to have the next, they'll answer your call or want to meet with you again. Yep. And that you find a reason to follow up with them that's meaningful and pers- purposeful. Um, you know, um, and that's what's so important so that those, that relationship can continue on. And that's why you don't take everything that you need with your, it's, it's okay not to have every question answered when you're on a visit. It's okay to not have every item with you. You know, we work with a consultant now that says pack it and ship it. Don't make it perfect. Right. It's, it's okay to be human and have to go search for an answer. And honestly, I love when gift yes. officers have to go search yes. for an answer because then they learn something through the process and know the organization better. So um, people just have to be willing to go for no. You've got to be willing to put yourself out there, not be afraid of no, let that slide down your back and just move on because it's not about you. It's about the opportunity presented to them, whether it's no to a visit, no to a gift, no to um, a partnership, um, because no means not now. No does not mean never. And there are ways to learn from um, a no to develop that into a yes, or there's ways to learn from that no to handle the next relationship that results in a yes. So you just got to go for it. And um, you got to understand that we're all human and we're here for, for the best reasons and intentions. And if, if, if that's what you go and that's your gut just is to meet people, develop good relationships on behalf of the organization to help move that organization forward. Man, it is it is uh, it is what gets me excited. It's what it brings me back to this career every day. And uh, just so, it's just so rewarding. Yeah, I love that. So, so, yeah, one of the things that I people struggle with sometimes is that like we're so cautious because we don't want to make a mistake. And that caution causes us to just like not do anything. And it's like, well, like, the, you know, I, I got this person that I know I need a call. They could, they could give that huge gift to, to start this campaign and have that ripple effect. But I got to make sure that I, that I do it in just the right way. Cause if I, if I screw it up, like all's lost. And then we just don't do anything. Man, you got one on here coming up next. I think with, uh, you got an earful. From someone who didn't like the dean of students. So, so, so Kevin, this is a good one. You know, you, you do all your research to the science of our industry and then there's the art, right? And so this is the first time in my early career that I remember that I had to kind of pivot and do that whole spiel about it's not about the preacher, it's about the church um, yeah. um, conversation. Because, you know, I obviously got the visit when I called a per- uh, on the person. I was flying to get to this person's house to do a series of visits in this person's city. So obviously it was something. I wasn't just down the road that I happened to pass by. Yeah. Um, the, the gentleman invited me into his office. And when I go into his office, the university I worked for, um, there were all kinds of memorabilia around his office. So I obviously knew that he loved the organization because the colors were everything, sign balls, all those sort of things you'd want to see. So the indicators of the science, oh, high affinity, high affinity, high affinity. And he said yes to the visit, right? Well, one of my, I loved doing higher education fundraising because one of the things you do, you meet with alumni and you get them to tell their story. You get to hear about all the things that made them excited about their time there and kind of re kind of harness that nostalgia and get them all excited about, um, about um, bleeding the colors of that organization. Well, yeah. the conversation quickly went another direction. <laughs> we click quickly when I asked him to tell, share his story, he started talking about a dean of students that he 
disliked and made parts of his time at the organization a terrible moment. So for whatever reason, he was crossways with the dean of students and could not stand this dean of students. So I'm being a good young development officer, and I'm listening, and I was trained that you often try to then to be able to respond and fix things, right? We're, 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 the, we're fundraisers, but we're also handymen and women that fix things, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. But there's obviously, Kevin, nothing I can do to fix a relationship of 30 years ago. And I don't even know if this dean of students still resided on this earth, right? So yeah. <laughs> uh, just try to quickly pivot and say, obviously, you're very interested in this organization. We're in a growth mode doing some incredible projects that we're asking people to invest and partner with us. Um, you knew that when you invited me here. So I've got a feeling that you understand the importance of this church, so to say. Let's not focus on one individual that you might be viewing as the pastor of the church because they're no longer at the organization and don't know if they're out on this yeah. earth anymore. Let's talk about the current organization that needs your help so that we can move forward um, and do great things because you're you're clearly passionate. Now, you know, I did this in a very nice conversation. I'm speeding this relationship up for this yeah. interview yeah. right now. Um, but man, oh, man, a few more interactions and a very nice um, gift transpired um, that was very meaningful. I had a always had a good relationship with that individual whenever we interact with them on social media and things like that. So it turned out um, to be a really rewarding opportunity, but man, it was one of those things, you know, you're, you're bebopping in someone's office. You're all excited. You're like, this is going to be easy. And then I get to go um, flam dunk, hit up a happy hour at the hotel bar, that sort of thing. And nope, we were there for hours and I was sweating. That was part one of this great conversation with Roy Loudenbach. If you enjoyed this episode, please uh, stay tuned next week. I'm going to upload part two of this conversation, and I know you're really going to enjoy it. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with other development professionals you know. And as always, I hope this episode has inspired you to schedule more visits. You're just one visit away from having a conversation with someone who could give a seven-figure gift to kick off an incredibly successful capital campaign.